Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sophie. I'm Yelly. And this is She's All Fat. The podcast for fat positivity, radical self-love, and chill vibes only. And also the podcast for radical belonging, now that we read Dr. Lindo Bacon's newest book. And that's what today's episode is all about. Gender, fatness, body politics, and radical belonging. About. About. But first, our news quarter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we love our stylish sister collab. You love our stylish sister collab. They love our stylish sister collab. Everyone loves our stylish sister collab. <laughs> we love to support Black-owned, fat-owned small businesses, and we know you do, too. We are literally obsessed with this collab and also with stylish sister. They are so cool. That is freaking right, Yelly. And this month is the last month to get the full deal. The really beautiful prints and our fave little fat activism banner are only available through the end of January. Yelly, tell the family where to go. You can go to stylishsista.etsy.com and check out the All Bodies Are Good Bodies collection. Tag us in your Instagram pics and we'll give you a little shout out on our stories. We gotta give a shout out to the She's All Fat Patreon. Yelly, what's going on over there? All right. Well, Team Paisley Moo Moo patrons are in our Facebook group giving each other some love and care for this difficult week, which is so sweet to see. And we've also been brainstorming some new and exciting ways to have community events. So we're talking journaling. We're talking book clubs. And we're also still planning some watch parties to go along with the weekly Patreon minisodes. This season, our bonus minisodes are all Fatty Film School episodes where I bring on a guest to chat with me about fat rep and fat phobia in movies like 10 Things I Hate About You, which is this week's bonus minisode with my current roommate, Dana. <laughs> Go to patreon.com slash she's all fat pod to join. So this week's episode, like last week's episode, is a read-along. We've been posting some reading questions and DMing with y'all about today's book, Radical Belonging. You know we love our fat writers, so we're going to keep doing these read-alongs. After this episode, the next book we're going to chat about on the pod is What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat by Your Fat Friend, aka Our Fat Friend of the Pod, Aubrey Gordon. Check the show notes to find the book and check our Instagram to read along with us. As you read, we'd love you to call in to our voicemail at 213-375-5023 with your thoughts and questions. Maybe we'll feature you right alongside our no longer anonymous fave, Fat Friend. All right, Sophie, it's time for the episode. But first, tell me about somewhere you feel like you belong. At our team meetings. I feel very good at our team meetings. We're always very nice to each other. And I love having a supportive work community, even though I feel like that's kind of like an oxymoron most of the time. (laughs) But (laughs) I love 
um, doing She's All Fat work with you guys. Wow, me too. I'm so soft. (laughs) Now here's the episode. Hi, family. I'm here with Dr. Lindo Bacon for a very special SAF book club episode. I'm thrilled. I've already fangirled out. Um, You know Lindo as the author of Health at Every Size. That's Haze, for those of you who may call it that at home. And the co-author of Body Respect, What Conventional Health Books Get Wrong, Leave Out, or Just Plain Fail to Understand About Weight, which are both must-reads for your bookshelf or library bookshelf. And of course, the book we're talking about today, Radical Belonging, How to Survive and Thrive in an Unjust World While Transforming It for the Better, Welcome to SAF, Lindo Bacon, Master of the Subtitle. (laughs) Thank you for being here. (laughs) Awesome to be here, Sophie. I've always enjoyed the podcast, and it's such an honor to be a guest this time. Mm, I'm geeking out every time you say that. So, okay, first I just wanted to give everyone a little info about your background. So you have a PhD, which is always impressive to me. Do you want to talk about a, a little bit about your background to people who may not know about you? Sure. Well, you know, if we're talking academics, I've got academics <laughs> up the wazoo. I've got that PhD, and I've Hell also yeah. got two. I've also got um, two master's degrees. They were all looking at the issue of weight and health, and my PhD is in physiology. My masters are in um, psych from a contemplative perspective, so mostly Buddhism. And then also um, my ma- a master's in exercise physiology. That's so cool. It is, but you know what? It's also like, um, I don't know, 20 years old, right? That's that's not really what informs me today. It, it Like, that was a quest because there was a time that I believed that academics had the answer to why it was so hard to be in our bodies. Yeah, it was just a lot. The the PhD is always impressive to me because my mom has one. So I'm like, I know how much work that was. You know what I mean? Yeah. What is the work stuff you've done recently that you feel has been more educational to you? Well, see, it's not the work stuff, I think. It's a matter of just living in the world and being observant. And, you know, it's, it's, it's about people. It's like, you know, what I realize is... You don't make change in the world through academics or ideas. Because I used to do that. I used to give lectures all the time. And, you know, I knew my subject material. But presenting people with facts doesn't change lives. If so, you know, it's like most people would know that diets don't work. Yes. Right? But you have to figure out how to get into people emotionally in order to make change. And it's about connecting with people. Yes. I actually, not to jump into the book too fast, but I feel like I was, when I was reading the book, I noticed that I've read like a lot more nonfiction books that are not true crime <laughs> recently. I've read a lot more. Like I've been educating myself about stuff. Like I recently read this book I really liked called The Color of Law. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I've, I've been like, it, but I haven't read it. No. I've been evangelizing about it. For anybody who is as ignorant as I was about like the way that housing law works it was like very interesting and very citation dense and so it was it was like interesting but I had to really like I listened to the audiobook as well it was like hard to get through even as somebody who like wanted all the facts and like wanted to integrate them into my thoughts and I think in in this book you have 
tons of citations and lots of facts, but the actual prose is not based around those facts. You have like a ton of footnotes and you write in a way that's much more person to person connecting. Yeah. And that's important to me. And in fact, if I'm going to kind of identify myself as what, how I would like to project in the world most, it's mostly as kind of an interpreter translator. Like, yeah, I know the science in depth and I've looked at these issues from a lot of different angles and I want to filter them in a way that is accessible and meaningful to people. So I think of myself almost more as a storyteller um, with a scientific background. And that's the role that I feel like is my uniqueness and how I want to make my mark. I love that. I think part of the reason that for me, the scientific background or like just your your degrees and stuff still for me, like I still care, even though I agree with everything you're saying, is it feels really good to have somebody who has the accolades of traditional academia be a voice against what a lot of people in traditional academia say. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. And I really appreciate the credibility that that those degrees give me. And it also concerns me to see how much we power we give that yes. credibility especially because of the access to them is so yes right. I know what you mean yeah and, and so what ends up like there's something awkward about me as a relatively slender person being a voice of the fat acceptance movement and totally. I'm given more credibility to speak about fat people's experience than fat people themselves right and something is really really wrong with that so as much as like my background gives me a credibility that gives me access, I also feel like I'm responsible to kind of destroy that, uh, you know, like figure out how to take advantage of that platform and give up that platform to help people to recognize that, you know, I'm saying what fat people have known for a long time through lived experience. And we need to start listening to fat people more. And so it's an odd thing of how to use my voice to dismantle my voice or the power of my voice. I feel similarly sometimes at just as somebody, I mean, you have a much bigger platform in that specific way about like fat stuff. But I feel the same way sometimes when I try to like, like I talk a lot about the privileges that I have that allow me to have an independent podcast you know, and and then at the same time, I'm like, okay, uh, I'm doing what I can to dismantle the parts of me that are, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, oh, man, this is weird. I still have this platform because of this. For me, I am at a point where I'm like so tired of having those conversations with thinner people who don't get it. But I'm like, go talk to this other person. Okay, like, look, they're not fat. And they're saying this. So maybe you'll listen to them. <laughs> like, it's reassuring to have that and and know that I'm not putting labor attention on another fat person if that makes sense about fat stuff sure but anyways oh my gosh I love to be schooled in the first 10 minutes of an interview this is incredible okay so this book is your third book so I mentioned the first two and you talk about this in the book but would you mind for our audience talking about how this book is kind of like a step forward? It's a shift in your perspective from the first the first book, especially. Sure. Well, my first book was Health at Every Size. And Love it. Big fan. Have many copies. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad that book is having its impact. And, 
you know, it's an odd thing. The book is already um, 12 years old or yeah. 10 years since the second edition. And it's still selling as well as, you know, the initial hit. And, you know, like the publishers call that a Bible when a book doesn't lose its credibility over the years, but still just as important. And yet things have changed so much since then. And I do see the value in the book as a self-help book and how important it is. And I'm also realizing, though, that I was writing the book based on this idea I had about eating disorders that was very common. You know, it was a book written for women who feel uncomfortable in their bodies, which of course is most women because it's it's such a cultural thing, and giving them tools to try to navigate that and to figure out how to feel more comfortable around things like food and exercise and self-image. And I wrote the book in part to save myself. You know, I was struggling with my own eating disorder and I was looking at all of the issues, like, you know, what I had to do to try to navigate it. But I realized that the story that I told in that book, it wasn't even my story. You know, like it was a book written from the perspective of someone who saw themselves as a woman struggling to find peace as a woman and in retrospect like I had to do a lot of kind of mental gymnastics to put myself in that role because the truth is I have never felt like a woman and even though I wrote in the book about how hard it is to navigate the issues of being in a body that where you've got this cultural ideal of what's acceptable and so you're constantly trying to navigate it. Honestly, that's never really what I did because I didn't want to be more beautiful. Like I was doing what society asked of me. Like they were telling me this is what you're supposed to do to be acceptable. And it was only in you know, fairly recently that I realized that all my life I've been struggling to present in this mold that just isn't me. And I just, once I gave up that mold and, you know, I accepted this, my gender queerness, you know, that I'm not a woman, that my eating disorder wasn't a struggle to be more attractive. It was because I kept looking at this body and it wasn't mine. Like there was this disassociation that had to happen. Through feminism, I learned to look at this body and say, oh, that's a perfectly attractive, acceptable body. But the key was I had to do that. I had to say, it's just not me. Like I had to objectify this body. So that's where the third book comes in. That was kind of a long-winded way to get here because what I realized was that my struggle wasn't around, you know, the typical stuff that I'd expressed in the first book. It was a struggle for belonging, you know, that I wanted permission to see myself in the way that I always see myself. And I wanted everybody else to see me as I am, too. And that's something that I never got before. And so this book is an assertion to let people know, hey, here I am taking up space. And it's in this space that you see me. And therefore, I now have the ability to be loved 
right? Because before I was always projecting or people were seeing something that wasn't really me. So I never got loved and appreciated. So this book is really, really important to me because it's demanding that people see me for who I am and it's allowing me then to access belonging in a way that I've never been able to. And I think that there are so many parallels here to fat people's experience, disabled people's experience, the experiences of people of color, like across the marginalizations of how society is always projecting these ideas onto us that don't allow us to be seen and valued for who we are. And it becomes very hard to own our identities take pride in and accept our identities if we're not simultaneously getting all that stuff from the outside. So I wanted to write a book that takes on those issues. And scientists that I am, I had to address the fact that there's a lot of trauma that comes from this feeling of unbelonging. When people are othering you and telling you that, that there's something wrong with your body, it has an impact on us. It changes us physiologically. So I wanted to look at things like, what does neurobiology tell us about this? And how do we navigate this? How do we heal from being othered? So it's not just a journey of how do we love ourselves and accept ourselves, but we're also got to simultaneously be doing this in community and fighting back against the culture that keeps alienating us. Because no matter how much work we do on our own, we're constantly going back into a world that keeps othering us and shuts us out. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of long-winded, I know, but I had to write this book. I had to, like, bring it all together. That's something I wanted to talk about, is the tension between the way that you can disseminate this information, this idea, is person to person. Like, one person reads one book, but really, it's a call for us to be all in community. And how can we, like, all I can do is give this book to everyone. You know what I mean? I can't make them, <laughs> like, read it and do it. So how do we bridge that gap between the part that we can do ourselves and the part we can't do ourselves? And how do we sit in that? Well, <laughs> I find it ironic that you're asking me the question because I feel like you demonstrate the solution. I mean, that's what this podcast is about. Me? Right? Is oh my that... God, you're going to make me cry. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you are creating community and a safe place for fat people to feel heard, validated, and be thoughtful. Like, and I think we all have to figure out how to navigate this. Like, how do we create a sense of belonging for other people? And you've got your unique way, which is definitely having its impact. And, you know, I Thank honor you. you for that. Oh my gosh, my head's going to be huge by the end of this interview. I'm going to go out and be like, I am very cool. I'm creating a community. Um, <laughs> thank you. I did not expect that answer. I Okay, so one of the other things you were saying was about like neurobiology. And that was also very resonant for me because this phrase sounds so wellness to me. But in my personal journey, I've been like at a point, especially because of the pandemic, where I have felt very disconnected from other people, which I think is a very common experience. And I also have a lot of, as listeners know, I have a lot of chronic illnesses and like chronic 
pain things, and they've all gotten worse in the pandemic. And one of my diagnoses is visceral hypersensitivity, which basically is like an extension of my IBS that means you feel bad and you're stressed out. We don't really know why or how to fix it. Try some anti-anxiety meds. And I was like, is that seriously <laughs> that's it. They're like, yeah, we don't know why you're in pain. Sorry, you're just stressed out. So it's like, it was interesting to read this because it it is coming for me at the same time that I'm reading about all this stuff that's like, yeah, when you're stressed out, your body's in pain. When you're stressed out, your body does that. Like all these things that I'm like, oh, well, it's not because I'm not, I mean, I already knew that it wasn't because I'm not, you know, doing enough, quote unquote. But like, really seeing the effects that stress and the all the aspects of things that you talk about. I have many privileges. So, you know, I don't want to say like it's all marginalization stuff, but I think that there's like a key a key part to what you're talking about that's about like turning the lens of like instead of symptoms, we're looking at like why is this happening and what is the chronic stress happening here and why is it happening across these populations in a more macro way. That's just my like personal <laughs> experience of how it's affected me too. Right. And I think it really helps to lighten the self-blame. Also, it gives you more power then to figure out at what as an individual you can do to help yourself. You know, putting the burden on the culture doesn't mean that you're giving up or that you don't have any power here, but it gives you more power to do something about it. Definitely. One of my most powerful things that I say to myself when I'm struggling with anxiety or with feeling upset about things going on is that I can't control what's going on, but I have to have like confidence in my ability to react to something. And I, I have worked to not only build that in terms of like, you know, like I can overcome whatever. That's not really what it is. It's just like I have to trust my body and my brain to be able to handle what comes at me because I've handled everything so far. I'm still here you know yeah but that and there is certainly real reason to feel anxious i mean the world isn't safe right now yeah. and so it would make sense when the world isn't safe that our body kicks in with vigilance you know and so we're hyper reactive we're scared like all of those are just normal physiologic responses to a messed up environment yes and things are especially messed up right now, I feel like the pandemic has been a, I don't know what the right word is, it's put a magnifying glass on some of the things you talk about in here and the ways that we see who gets the most sick, who has the worst health outcomes from getting COVID even. Okay, here's a quote from Connection is the Antidote, which is one of the chapters in here. We don't create connection, the connection is already there. Instead, we restore the connection that was interrupted by a culture of othering. Connection is inherently collective. We have to do it together. The more we say so to each other and see the same experience in others, the more we break out of self-blame. So that was like very reassuring to me. And also I read this book recently that is older. So you may have read it already or you probably have, but have you read Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silco? I have not. No. Okay. It's like a really amazing book. Basically it's about the, the writer is a native indigenous person who writes this novel, this beautiful like novel that comes in and out of time and flashback and stuff and about the pain and um, separation that her main character feels from 
the land that they live on, the society that they're in. And it has a very similar message at the end of like, we are meant to be connected to each other. And we are in a space that where things have disconnected us, but we're actually meant to be together. That's a much more hopeful viewpoint for me than like, oh, everything is so wrong. And like, how are we going to make a connection together? It's like, oh, no, this is a returning. I like I love that idea. Thanks. Yeah. And it's important to me, too, that like I have to continually find safe places where I can just relax and be. And it's the people that can provide that for me that are the people I continually return to. You know, those have become my close friends. And for other people, I have to constantly try to create a safe space where we can create that. And it's certainly possible. Like you and I have just met for the first time. And I think we're already doing that. You know, Mm -hmm. we've, we've already just kind of relaxed into a sense of connection, despite the fact that we have some, some different social identities that, that really mark us in the world. Right. And like, I think for you, for example, an identity that is somewhat central to you is your fatness. Yes. And yet here you are, you're connecting with someone who is not fat, but in some sense, that's because perhaps, I mean, I, from what you've said, like I've already proven myself in yeah. that realm of yes. making space for you, right? And so you don't have your defenses up that you're going to get the usual rejection. Yeah, that's exactly that. right. Totally. Yeah, there's like pre-level of trust there. Yeah. And so we all have access to that, but it's going to take us learning about other cultures and identities, getting comfortable in them so that we can continually create safe space for everybody to be who they are. Yeah. But if you had started out this conversation by doing what many people do to me, like misgendering me, let's say you use the wrong pronoun, right? Mm-hmm. It would have immediately set up a space for me where I would have had my defenses up. Either I would have shut down to some extent, or I would have had to work hard at letting go of that to find connection, right? Yeah. But you did the work on yourself, right? So that coming into this, you knew some basics about how to create, how to see me. Yeah. And I love that idea that as humans, we're set up many times not to connect with one another because we're taught ideas about people that don't allow us to see them. But yet we all have the ability to find the connection that's already there and to unlearn all those toxic things and actually see people. But it takes ongoing work on ourselves. It's not like, you know, we are there because we've all absorbed this toxic culture. Yes. There's some statements like that in the book are the kind of thing, if I'm very anxious or worked up, or even if I'm normal, but I'm not super calm and not very zen, if I read something or my mom says something to me or my partner says something to me, there can be a sensation that's like, oh, that that's right. And my whole body relaxes when I hear it. 
And it's not something I could have thought of on, like I was too stuck in whatever in my head and I needed someone else to say that, to see, to see me and see my connection to them or see me as I am in my element, in my world, because what I'm really experiencing in those moments is an inability to see myself, an inability to see what's going on. I'm feeling tense. I'm feeling disconnected from myself. And there were a lot of moments like that in here where I was just like, oh my God, yes, this is so right. I need to stay centered in this. In this. Like, for example, let's see, what can I find? Well, first of all, I would recommend everybody reads this chapter about fear, shame. I'm a big shame person being important. Yeah, one of the things that I thought was really powerful about the shame chapter, or, or the, the thing about shame that was powerful for me that I had to write about, was recognizing that shame serves important and valuable functions. There's a reason we feel shame. Here, let me just read this one quote that okay. I was thinking about before those moments when I feel like I need some reminder of myself or whatever, I often find that I am falling back onto ideas of individuality. I feel stressed because I feel that I need to do something on my own. I feel stressed because I, I need to achieve something. And if I can't get it, then ball like, or, you know, I have, I failed personally. And this book continually brings us back to the idea that like, no, it's not really about you. It's about like how you can be calm and with yourself and fit into this community and help others and support yourself among others. So here's, I think like, I mean, we could do a whole other episode just about the toxicity of American individualism and the cult of individuality here. But one part of that, that I think a lot of people who have dealt with marginalization or just bad experiences, rough experiences, like think a lot about like, I'm tough, like I'm resilient, you know, like I can handle this. Okay, so then you have this quote about resiliency. Resilience is conventionally defined as the ability to bounce back from difficult circumstances, but that definition falls short. Resilience also requires having the resources to support bouncing back. If resilience gets defined as an individual trait, individuals will get blamed for their inability to recover from adversity. Every challenge you experience personally, others have experienced too. And another reason why resilience is not merely personal but relational and why connection with others is essential to resiliency that is very important for me to remember and i'm sure for other people too yeah i'm trying to figure out what i'm trying to figure out what the question is there there's no question it's just like wow i just love that resiliency as a community trait is not something that American rich white people are taught to embrace or value, unless it's in the idea that like, we're settlers, we came, which is like a monstrous way to think about, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's right. awful. I know, you know, and if you've, if you've lost your job in this pandemic, and you're yes. scared, right, about how you're gonna eat and pay rent, all of that makes sense, right? And if you come from a family of wealth, you might yeah. have resources where, you know, your family will take care of you during this time and you're going to get through it. But if you don't have those kind of resources, your ability to bounce back from losing your job is going to be much, much harder. So as a culture, we need to figure out how we can provide resources so that everybody's got access to being able to bounce back. Yes. And... We also have to figure out how to support individuals in recognizing where they have power and where they don't, because yes. so many people are blaming themselves for being in the situation that they're in. 
you know, and, and yeah. And as a response, as <laughs> yes. a culture, like we have a responsibility to create those resources for people right now. Like we've got to invest in community care right now, instead of having the expectation that individuals are going to figure out something without having the tools or ability to yes. do it. And that dictates our future right now is how much we're going to learn from this pandemic and invest more in community care because the cult of individualism has failed so many people. And of course, as we keep mentioning, it's not just anybody it's failing. You know, it's specifically people with certain identities. Yes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, I want to go back to what you were going to say about shame. I want you to say what you were going to say about shame, if you remember. Well, before I do that, the thing that I've been hanging on to, though, is I'm feeling awkward about something I said earlier, like kind What's of... What's that? Uh, something about claiming my space as um, a s safety for oh. fat people. I guess I just want to acknowledge that like I also realize that I don't have all this stuff figured out and that I'm also constantly messing up and not always the best advocate and so I I mean I don't want to like virtue signal here. <laughs> I don't think you are. I don't think you are. That's okay. I wouldn't have let you get get past with it if I thought you were. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I mean, I think the same thing is true of me. If you were kind about me trying to make this a space for you, but then I could easily be like, well, I might mess up and I might say the right pronoun later and I might say the wrong one and you won't be met, you know, I could do the same thing for yeah. you. Anyway, so work in progress, which is probably like a good way to segue into back yeah. into talking about shame. Yes. You know, because it's a human trait to want to be liked and appreciated by other people. And biologically, this was wired into us because there yeah. was a time where we needed people. You know, if you didn't look for food together as a group, there's no way that an individual could have survived. So we're biologically wired when we disappoint the group to have some kind of negative feeling in our body to motivate us to try to stay within cultural norms for the sake of survival, which is beautiful until you put it into the context of a culture where there's a power imbalance. And 
certain things get valued and other things don't. And so what that means is people then feel shame for the ways in which the culture has defined power, right? So if your body is fatter, say, than the thin bodies that get more attention and respect in the world, you're taught to feel shame and it is yes. if something is wrong. So something that was a good trait, if you were to put it in the context of a more fair society, <laughs> turns into yet another way in which oppression gets internalized biologically. You know, we're constantly feeling shame for the ways in which we're different. And it takes a lot to recognize that the shame response that we're feeling is because we've absorbed a toxic cultural message and not because there's something wrong with us. Yes. And one of the best and most important ways to heal from that is to keep putting ourselves into an alternative culture where we are loved and valued. And that takes being around people who look like us or who value us. Yes, that's one of the reasons like queer community or fat community is so important to me. Like both of those are places and they often overlap where I feel more comfortable being myself because all of a sudden you're in a place where this thing about you is actually the majority trait instead of like, well, I guess being fat is the majority trait in the US, but people act like it's not. But like you're in a place where this thing about you all of a sudden everyone ha- is on the same page about and it feels way better to be in those spaces. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think it's really important too to recognize that just because you're in a fat accepting space doesn't mean that everybody is always, everybody in that space is always fat accepting or even yes. that you know, you are most of the time. Yes. Because you may not get there, right? Yes. I mean, it's hard to get there when there's that wider culture that exists. And so I guess I also want us to have space. Like, I think what's more important in those spaces is not so much that they're fat accepting as much as there's acceptance for the pain of not being fat accepting too, you know? And that there's just room and space for whatever it is that you feel. Yes, that kind of space, like there's a lot of online or Facebook like fat communities that struggle with how to create that space in a way that's safe or good for everyone because there's so many competing needs. For example, a common Facebook group argument that I see in fat groups is like smaller fat people want to talk about things that are hard for them. And then larger fat or super fat people are like, I don't want to see this, you know, and then there's these competing needs in spaces and different spaces like figure out different rules or different, you know, priorities for them. But there's never it's not like there's like, oh, on this side, it's bad. And on this side, it's like, oh, everyone's happy all together. It's like a constant readjustment of like, okay, what's for you? What's for me? How can we figure this out together? It's similar to like when I talk to my friend Glamputee, Alex, who does a lot of disability awareness and rights work stuff about um, how events and spaces often have to work for competing needs of different disabilities. Like one person may need absolutely no sense because of like some reaction and another person may, you know, there's like things that may come in conflict with each other. There's not like one for the scent one that comes in conflict, but I can't think of it off the top of my head, but just there's always competing needs. 
the ideal is that we're like comfortable with those competing needs, right? And like able to try to work on all that together. Not that like everything will be perfect in some space. Yeah. And I would imagine too, that it just talks about how important it is that we create a wide variety of spaces, that we need spaces where we can all come together, right? And so in those spaces where we all come together, it's not appropriate for thinner people to be talking about their body image struggles. Yes. Yes, we know that they have body image struggles too, but that's not the space to air them. Exactly. And we can have private spaces. So I have my white affinity group. It's just white folks. And then that's the place where we can air some of the stuff we're struggling with about racism, but not make it uncomfortable for the people of color in our lives to be confronted with this yes, all the time. Yes, I have found that like that space very useful as well. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of just compartmentalizing Yes. so that we have access to a wide variety of stuff. And when we're in shared space, we have to keep learning better and better how to make that space open and safe for everybody. And it doesn't mean that we put aside our identities. It just means that it might not be the place to air certain things. Totally. And there's like different spaces where that can be for you. Yeah. I think like if we had more practice as a culture or just a group of people with that kind of managing of different needs, uh, everything would be better. That's like a very simplistic statement, but we'd have so little practice with it, I feel. Yeah. And I think it's, it's difficult on every end. So for example, I've said and done things that have been harmful to Black people. And so I've done things where it's, I've created an unsafe place. And I've looked at how some of the black people have reacted to that. And for some people, it has, even if the incident didn't feel like it was a very big thing, like from my perspective, I thought, oh God, I I see that, you know, I'm sorry. And, you know, and I want to move on. But for that person, it struck a chord and triggered trauma that was so much bigger than the particular incident. And they couldn't recover from it, right? And their anger and lashing out, you know, and while I would love to be able to say to that person, you know, isn't there a point where you get over it? You know, like, I don't know what else I can be doing here. Like, I can't do that. I don't have that power, right? And I have to sit with the discomfort of, I caused this person a lot of pain and I might not be able to... I mean, there's things I could be working on to try to take responsibility for it. And I also don't have whole, I don't have complete control over the outcome. And I'm going to have to sit with the fact that I've hurt somebody. And this is just, it's just so hard for all of us to navigate this. And as I'm saying this, I also just want to emphasize too that there's incredible opportunity for us to share joy together too. Like we spend so much time talking about oppression and I think we need to make sure to build in equal time for focusing in on how gorgeous it is to be together and what we could be doing to be joyful together. I totally agree. That's like fat joy for example, is like something that really lifts me or buoys me. Like I, my friend Carissa is like a Instagram influencer 
and she all of her posts are just like her being fat and being happy out in Kansas, like in the wheat fields. And when and I love it when I'm on Facebook and I scroll by one of her posts, I'm always like, oh, look at that. Like, she's so fat. She's so happy. And it makes me feel so like, I mean, that's just a very small example because we're separated right now from COVID. But those moments of connection and like seeing an opportunity that for yourself, seeing your, your friend being happy in a moment, those things are really what's healing and like helpful and and good those moments of connection and being seen like you said I mean seeing through the shame or or dealing with it or like seeing that I didn't need to feel it was a big big part of coming to terms with my body and like understanding myself and becoming a fat activist like a huge huge part of that was just dealing with the amount of shame I had about my body and the same has continued to be true in other aspects of myself that I try to come to terms with the same was true when I figured out I was bi I was like I didn't even realize I had shame about this because I'm I think of myself as very like queer positive but I didn't realize I had this image about you know myself that this wouldn't fit into that was much easier to deal with than the fat stuff (laughs) was way faster process. And then like recently dealing with like the more I get into my ADHD diagnosis, the more I see how many ways I punished myself for being neurodivergent in ways I didn't even realize, you know, things that I thought, no, I'm just being, I'm making myself do it the right way. And like, I'm doing, you know, I'll get through, like I'm strong, I'm resilient, I'll get through this. And now I'm like, oh no, I was just using shame to beat myself up. I don't need to do that at all. (laughs) So it's like been a constant process of seeing identifying shame, which can be hard. I didn't even recognize half those things as shame before. Yeah. And when you don't recognize them, like that's when they grow. When you start sharing your shame with other people, it helps to dissipate it. Okay. I want to briefly talk about the end part of your book because you have a huge appendix here with a bunch of really helpful, incredible resources. So first there's the Manifesto for Body Liberation. There's a bunch of exercises. There's terms. There's a glossary. There's things you can use if you have an affinity group or if you're learning about things or if you have a book club. And then there's all of these amazing footnotes that we talked about with like sources and stuff. I wanted to know if there's an appendix tool that you have used a lot since the book came out, like when you're talking to other people about the book or one that you recommend people especially turn to or just one that you like or you're proud of. Here's the one that I would love to emphasize. And you have the book in front of you, so you could probably find the title, but it's the one that helps people to examine their own identities. Sure. I think it's really helpful for us to a lot of the privileges that we have we're just not so aware of and it can be really hard to identify things that we don't even know exist and I put a lot of work over the years in developing workshops to help people to see themselves better and to see their impact on the world better and I put them into a series of questions and exercises people can do to learn about themselves better. What's the title of that? Do you, do you remember? Yes, I had it and then I put it down to listen to you. Was, Sorry. No, it is the critical awareness exercise assessing the cultural impact on quality of life. And then you have all these 
cool questions and a little chart with an impact like a journal reflection. I think I'm going to bring this to my white affinity group to do next meeting. I think I will do that. Yeah, I would love to see more people kind of asking those kinds of thoughtful questions in groups and using them as a springboard for reflection and discussion. Totally. Okay, so just before we wrap up, I want to just again note what you mentioned when you were talking about the book and how you got there. But I think if if anyone is going to not go with the book, but they want to hear like one of the most important messages from it, for me, it's this part that a lot of body positivity doesn't address or that people who are maybe new to it often, like I get this question in email all the time, but you address for you, your personal experience, like the cognitive dissonance before you had top surgery of being like, this body is a good body, but it's not my body. And how transness and fat liberation are linked together and how what you talk about in there makes it more of a free and open space instead of it being like, I think a lot of people react to body positivity like, I have to love my body. It has to be the way that it is forever. And every I have to accept everything about it, it has to be good you know, and they struggle with like not having that self-love quote unquote. And so I think if anybody struggles with that, then they should get this book and read it because it'll help you see that like, it's not body positivity is not about, as we say often, body positivity is not about self-love. It's not about just being like, I have to love myself. Like, are you familiar with memes at all? Do you ever look at memes? Do you know memes, Lindo? Okay. (laughs) There's like a meme that's like, like a kid in high school and they're sitting in their chair and they're straining so hard that like the veins are popping out on their face everywhere. And people will post it be like me trying to like get through 2020 or or whatever. But sometimes if you're trying, like there can be a space that people get in with self-love quote unquote, where I feel like they're doing that meme. They're trying so hard. They're like, I love myself. And it's like, you're okay. (laughs) You are okay. And I just think you um talk about your personal experience in a way that makes that idea really present and real and obvious logical like easy to comprehend so i want to thank you for sharing your experience and all the pain and struggle that was in that because it helped me that's awesome thank you (laughs) yeah is there anything else you want to say or any further readings or things you want to say to the family before we wrap up well um You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about is that people have looked at my past two books as books that are very supportive around like weight and navigating weight. Like my first book wasn't as expressly written for naming issues for fatter people. It was more it was more generalized around Mm -hmm. fat. Uh, The second book, I think, was a little bit more acknowledging more of a spectrum. Right. But what I think was most interesting to me in the third book is that it's a rare rarity in that we usually have books that are fat social justice books and then we have another genre of books that are social justice which are yeah. usually very fat phobic yes and this book 
is neither of them. It's not a book that's written expressly for the fat community, but I think its power for the fat community is that it normalizes fatness as yet another social justice issue, which is something that rarely happens within social justice books. And that was something that I was really hoping for, is like, We've got to figure out how people recognize that fat phobia is just as problematic as so many of the other isms yes. that we have yes. out there. I think you do that. I also think I just have noted in your work and also, I mean, in this conversation, just how constantly you are like analyzing what you've done, what you've said, what you've written and trying to like both make it more whole, like always just working on yourself and I really admire that too (laughs) you're always trying to make it make make it a more perfect union I think that's incredible I don't feel that I have I can get to that impulse but usually my first impulse is more anxiety but you know what I'll get there one day okay good well thank you so much for being on the show I really have been so happy to talk to you everybody should buy and support you is there anything that would make a big impact for you if a lot of people would do it to share your work or your book like what can we do to support you well I would just love to see people getting the word out and you know just be great to have more people talking about the book love it okay thank you so much Lindo Bacon we love you welcome to the family (laughs) (laughs) honored thank you And that's this week's episode. Thanks to everyone who read along with us. Don't forget to pick up a copy of What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat for our next book-related app. That's right. Also, just a reminder that one of the easiest things you can do to support the pod is to leave an Apple podcast review. It's a great way to help us promote and elevate the pod while also giving us something super warm and fuzzy to read. Speaking of support, we can't forget to shout out our patrons. Thank you to... Kylan Chen. Shout out Kylan middle school friend <laughs> joelle farley emma kenny amanda winterstein Alyssa medvec aaron hummel jessica alley kate white liz hitzel and Haley durandetta we could not make the show without you bye bye she's all fat was created by me Sophie Carter-Khan and April K. Quio, who graduated. We are an independent production. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash she'sallfatpod. When you pledge to be a supporter, you'll get all sorts of goodies and extra content. Please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's super important in making sure people find the show so we can grow the family. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the stuff we mentioned today. And don't forget to send us your questions at fyi at she'sallfatpod.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 213-375-5023 and we might even play it on the pod. Our episode ads are done in partnership with Acast. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can get started at acast.com. Our theme music was composed and produced by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our website was designed by Jesse Fish and our logo is by Hannah Sanger. Lynn Barbera co-produced and edited this episode. Yelly Cruz is our magical junior producer. Our thin crony forever is Maria Vertel. I'm our host and co-producer. Our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter handles are at She's All Fat Pod. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Stay safe. We love you. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.